You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 10 of Ask Concussion Doc. I am your host, Dr. Cameron Marshall. Uh, Sorry, we're a little bit late getting going today. Um, Got a lot of stuff kind of going on. Um, So some things to talk about, some upcoming events. The other thing to uh, cover is this concussion that happened to uh, the Morocco player in the World Cup. Uh, Obviously a very hot topic of conversation. We had a number of people comment on the post on uh, Instagram. And uh, we have a couple people coming on towards the end to actually go into some details about FIFA's protocols as well as UEFA's protocols. Uh, we're going to see if there, if uh, you know, one of these individuals knows about kind of the training that goes on um, with the sideline personnel, if there is any special requirements, things like that. So uh, stay tuned to the end. That should be fairly interesting. Um, some other things we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about whiplash versus concussion and how do we differentiate it if possible. Uh, we're going to talk about um, parents and how sometimes they can put some pressure on healthcare practitioners to make clearance decisions uh, based on symptoms um, for for kids. And then we're going to talk about study of the week, which is actually regarding fighting in the NHL. So pretty interesting show today. First off, uh, we have some conferences coming up uh, next week that we are very excited to go to. One of them is the APTA Next Conference, which is in Orlando, Florida. So if you are going to that, make sure you come by our booth and say hi. And the other one we will also be at is the NADA conference. So this is our first NADA conference, uh, and this will be in New Orleans, and we'll also have people there. So if you are going to the NADA conference this week, make sure you come by the Complete Concussion Management booth, say hi, and uh, talk to the guys about Complete Concussion Management. And um, so we'll talk a little bit about the FIFA concussion. So um, player Norden uh, Amrabat, was injured during the game. And basically, if you guys have seen the video, if you haven't yet, go to uh, my Concussion Doc Instagram page and you'll be able to see the full video there. And when he gets clipped, he hits the ground, his head hits the ground, he goes into a full, what's called fencing response, where he's got rigidity of the arms, um, and that's an obvious sign of a loss of consciousness. And then you have the, I believe it was the team physiotherapist, and we'll get more clarification on that towards the end, but team physiotherapist comes in and um, basically they get him right up off the field. One player is holding his legs up in the air <laughs> for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, and uh, it was actually comical to watch. And uh, the, the, the physio comes out, gets him up off the ground, and then they start kind of slapping him in the face, you know, kind of that old school, like you just got to wake him up a little bit kind of thing, spraying water in his face. Um, and eventually he did leave the game, which is good. But today they have him back on the field and um, he has a scrum cap on, as if that's supposed to be some sort of protective uh, measure. But anyway, we'll talk more about that towards the end. But obviously, um, a lot of questions being raised, again, about concussions in soccer slash football, depending on where in the world you live. So here's our questions for today. Is there a way to differentiate this from Phoebes uh, on Instagram? And uh, the question is, is there a way to differentiate between concussion and whiplash or neck dysfunction 
Or is it just a case of treat the neck and see what happens? So this person's asking about return to play perspective. If the symptoms resolve after you've treated the neck, does that mean that the player's okay to return to contact sport? So there's a few questions here. First off is how do you differentiate between concussion and whiplash? Well, it's actually quite difficult. The symptoms and signs of whiplash and the symptoms and signs of concussion are identical. There's neck pain in concussion patients, there's neck pain in whiplash, but there's also confusion, blurred vision, balance impairments, um, you know, mental fogginess, um, um, headaches, dizziness, all the same features that you see in concussion are also present in whiplash. And actually, I did my thesis uh, with with uh, John Letty and Barry Willer at the University of Buffalo, and we looked at patients with persistent concussion symptoms and patients with persistent whiplash symptoms, and we found that there was actually no difference between the symptom presentations of either group. So we grabbed people that had symptoms of concussion for between one month and one year, and people with whiplash for one month and one year ago that were still experiencing symptoms, and we compared them on their symptom profiles. And there was literally no difference between the groups on measures of whiplash and measures of um, concussion. Now, one way that you may be able to differentiate, at least from a what's called physiologic PCS or physiologic concussion, is through the Buffalo concussion treadmill test. So Buffalo is trying to get, uh, trying to further the research in this regard to see or use potentially the concussion treadmill test as a uh, biomarker for concussion, meaning that if you do the treadmill test and you pass it, well, maybe that means you don't have a concussion. If you do the treadmill test and fail, well, maybe that means you do have a concussion. And ultimately, I think more research needs to be done on that. But this, the first um, point this came out was uh, looking at persistent symptoms. And so they use the treadmill test to differentiate between what they call physiologic PCS, meaning symptoms related to a blood flow impairment or ongoing physiologic disruption in the brain versus something else, whether it be cervical spine, a vestibular disorder, a visual disorder, uh, a psychological disorder, migraine headaches, or any other thing. So what we do, um, at least in, in, in our um, interpretation of all the literature that's out there, is if somebody's having symptoms, you can't differentiate where those symptoms are coming from. And actually there was a study done by the University of Buffalo that proved this point exactly, that there was no way to differentiate um, concussion from whiplash. So if somebody's symptomatic, you have to assume that there was a concussion involved. And if you treat the neck and the symptoms go away completely, that doesn't mean that they can return to contact sport, but what that means is you can now initiate the return to play process. So that you've treated their neck, their symptoms have gone away. Well, have you done a treadmill test? Have you pushed them to the limit to see if any symptoms come on? People having trouble hearing? Okay, sorry, I'll lean in. Have you pushed them to that limit? Um, the other question is, um, you know, what, what needs to be done after the fact? So let's say they, have a, they had a whiplash injury and a concussion. We don't really know. You've treated their neck. The symptoms have resolved. Okay, well, you don't, you don't just return somebody to play when symptoms resolve anyway. 
you have to run them through the return to play process, which involves physical exertion testing if you're doing things appropriately, uh, potentially some baseline retesting uh, variables. And so the answer would be no, I wouldn't just allow them to return to contact sport in the event that the symptoms go away with neck treatment. However, that would make my kind of clinical hypothesis to be more reflective of the fact that it may be whiplash injury or neck injury over concussion injury. So um, I think there's there's some merit to that, but I think there's a lot more work that would have to be done after the symptoms have gone away just to make sure that you're, you're doing your due diligence and that people are um, – uh, not going back too soon or going back with ongoing concussion issues. Hope that answered that question. Number two, baseline testing webinar. So this came from the webinar we did on baseline testing. And um, the question is, how do you manage families that are convinced that asymptomatic means return to play? And so this is something that we get all the time as concussion clinicians. You have a kid who they start to feel better maybe a week or two after their injury and the parents bring him in and go, no, he's fine. He's fine. Yeah. We have a big tournament this weekend. Want to make sure that kid plays. And my answer now is the same as my answer was during the webinar is basically this is the importance of having, you know, a good baseline measure. So I think that, you know, a lot of people utilize baseline testing as like a method to make your diagnosis, but for the most part, you don't require a baseline test to make a concussion diagnosis. The signs and symptoms as well as a mechanism of injury is all you need. And so when baseline testing becomes really important is with something exactly like this, when a parent brings their kid in saying, no, no, they're fine, they're fine, they're fine. You can then say, okay, well, we're going to run them through, you know, Obviously, they have to go through all the return to play steps. If they haven't done that, they have to go through it. But now you have, let's say they've done all the return to play steps. Well, this is when we run them through uh, the Chicago Blackhawks test. Uh, if they pass the Chicago Blackhawks test, then we run them through a baseline uh, retest so we can test all their reaction time, their memory, their concentration, their balance. We look at force plate balance. We look at... Um, um, all sorts of tests. So you can't just rely on one specific test. That's the issue is a lot of people will just do a computer test or people will run, you know, a certain type of, um, you know, let's say a visual test and that's all they do. Well, those by themselves have all been shown to be crap. In order to have a good baseline test, you have to have a battery of tests that all that fulfill various requirements, one being longevity from the injury. So if you're just doing scats, for example, well, scats normalize five days after injury. So you need a test that shows this good longevity so that when a parent comes in and says, oh, no, they're fine, they're fine, they're fine, you can say, all right, let's see. Let's check them out. And, well, they failed their physical exertion test. They're throwing up right now. Do you think they're ready to go? No. Oh, their headache is bad or they have dizziness during physical exertion. Do you think they're ready to go? No. So now a parent who thinks that they're ready to go, you can show them, well, maybe they're not, right? Or you run them through this baseline battery and say, look, their reaction time is still slow. Their ocular motor and processing speeds are still slow. Their balance is still off. And you can show them right here. Look, it, here's before injury. Here's now. Do you think they're ready? And now a parent who's typically inclined to argue with the healthcare professional about letting their kid play uh, the parent now realizes, okay, well, maybe they're not ready yet. And I think that's where having a really good baseline helps to keep sports safer because it gives us one last kind of check or balance to make sure that people aren't getting returned too soon. On to study of the week. So this study here is regarding fighting in the National 
Hockey League. And so we could only get the abstract because this was presented at a conference. And so they just published the abstracts for now. So we're staying tuned for the full paper. But I'm just going to give you the brief, brief synopsis of the paper. And the paper is called Fighting in the NHL, Five-Year Review, Fists of Fury, But Few Concussions. Now, the purpose of this was to analyze a consecutive to analyze consecutive NHL fights from 2010 and 11 up to 2014 and 2015, recording all resulting injuries and number of games that a player missed. So they went through um, various websites, domains, uh, and recorded all the fights that were that were had during that time, and then all the injuries that came afterwards. The NHL had 992 fights in 1950 games over a period of two seasons. So basically a fight per game ratio of about 51%. So in 51% of NHL games, there's a fight. Um, There's a good stat for you. Um, 30 injuries resulted to 1984 combatants for an injury rate of 1.5 injuries per 100 fighters over that time period. So basically one and a half percent of the fighters involved in all those fights got injured. Specifically looking at concussions, only six concussions happened in 1900 or sorry, 992 fights resulted in only six concussions. Um, that was 20 concussions were 20 percent of the injuries that were sustained in fights. So you have things like separated shoulders and whatever else. Um, So the rate of concussions was 0.2 concussions per 100 fights, which is less than tenfold of the reported concussion rates in standard NHL gameplay. It's 10. So 10 times less concussions happen in fighting in the NHL than happen in regular gameplay. So just body contact. The 10 players with the most fights in the NHL annually for the past five seasons tallied 1,000 fights from 50 different players. Um, This means that some of those players, the fights per season are up to 17 to 33 fights for a single player in a single season, which is crazy. Um, Injury rate of three injuries per 100 fights. That's all injuries. And a concussion rate of those 50 fighters of 0.15 concussions per 100 fights. So the discussion points here are, although fighting may appear a direct causative factor to concussions, the data does not prove it. So we have people that are trying to eliminate fighting from hockey uh, based on the concussion risk. And basically a lot of people think that fighting in hockey is the result or the, the cause of most concussions. And this data doesn't really support it. And right now there's a documentary on Netflix called Ice Guardians. And they talk about less than 5% of concussions in the NHL actually come from fighting. And so the debate that happens, and I haven't seen it yet. I got this from, uh, from Rick here. But I haven't seen the documentary yet. But apparently um, the argument that is being made, which is an interesting one, is that maybe fighting keeps the incidence of concussion lower in the National Hockey League Because if most of the concussions are coming from hits and let's say players are targeting the superstars on a particular team to try and hit them or injure them in some way um, and get them out of the game, which could result in concussion injuries, 
but that person may be less likely to go and injure a superstar player knowing that there's a potential tough guy on the other team that's going to come and, you know, beat them up if they were to do that. So then it creates this whole other debate of does fighting actually keep hockey safer? There's the debate. Interesting. Um, I'm not going to throw in either way of what I, what I think, but um, I think that's an interesting concept and one that should definitely be, uh, definitely be considered. Okay, so uh, I'm not sure if they're still on or if they came on at all, but uh, we have a couple people that wanted to chime in about the, about the soccer concussions that happened in the World Cup. Um, the first one is the football physios. It's Andy Serafin. Hey. Hey, how you doing, man? Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, no problem. No problem. It was awesome that you kind of mentioned that you wanted to come on. I think that's uh, that's amazing. Here, we just got to turn the volume up, I think, so people can hear you. All right. Do I sound good now? Yeah. Yeah, we got you on a mic, too. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, pretty <laughs> – interesting injury that happened um and you know you you did your your whole thesis looking at you know concussion in soccer kind of you did some 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 research in that area doing uh and i think you said you did a lit review looking at concussions in soccer uh what are your thoughts on that yeah so uh, i did my um, so just so your listeners know, I am a physical therapy student at Duke right now. Um, I went to Temple for my undergrad, and part of my undergrad was I did a, I did a uh, pretty much like a lit review in concussion management in the sport of soccer. And there's there's a lot here. Um, if you don't mind, I would like to actually take it back to the 2014 World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually have some interesting stats for you here. Um, there were 67 players that showed two or more signs of concussion during the games. 11 received no assessment. 42 immediately returned to play after assessment. And 11 got sideline tests to play. Only three out of 67 players that were shown two or more signs of concussion were removed from play. Wow. And the, the current rule, or the rule that was established when 2012 was going around, said that um, players showing any signs of concussion should be immediately withdrawn from play and assessed by a sideline health care official. And the vast majority were not even assessed by a sideline official. And even those that were assessed, only three were ruled out of play. Now, FIFA, they did catch wind of this. Um, this was a study done actually in Toronto. Um, they did catch wind of this, and they instituted some new rules about concussion management after the 2014 World Cup. So, in in those in those injuries that that came out, and the ones that weren't removed or not even assessed, were there any like this, where there was like a, a loss of consciousness or a questionable loss of consciousness um, that that you know of or or can recall? So there actually was in the World Cup final, um, Germany versus Argentina, a German midfielder by the name of Christoph Kramer was actually knocked out cold. Um, and he continued to play for at least 15 more minutes before he was removed from play. And he, it, it was clear to me at the time 
Um, I was only a college freshman at the time that he was concussed. He was hazy. His gait was completely off, and he was allowed to play for about 15 more minutes before being removed from play. So what, like, what is it? Why is, why is FIFA so far behind on this? Like, why, why is this? I think in professional sports now, there's been such a lens of scrutiny that's been put on to, um, you know, every other professional sports organization. I think now FIFA is feeling a little bit of heat, but what is it? What, what do you think it is? What do you make of that? In my opinion, I mean, it's, it comes down a lot to what the game is at the highest level. Um, from our perspective, we kind of view these healthcare providers that are in that in that frame, right, as the best of the best. And most of them probably are. But there's so many other factors that go into deciding the healthcare of a player besides just the healthcare team. It goes into, okay, uh, does the player want to play? Does the manager want them to play? Do their club or national team want them to play? Is there, you know, a whole nation of 50 million plus people that are demanding for you to go on the, on the field. And there's just so many things that go around it that aren't really in the scope of most people in the world of healthcare that do impact the care of each player. So what do you know, if any, like if there's standardized training for, for sideline personnel, or is that left up to, to the teams themselves or, or the practitioners themselves to, to do that, or does, does FIFA have some sort of standardized approach that all, all training personnel must go through? So FIFA does have some standard rules that um, I can actually tell you guys. They After the 2014 World Cup, they announced three rule changes for um, concussion and traumatic brain injury intervention during the game. Um, first, referees will be allowed to stop the game for up to three minutes for healthcare providers to um, assess the athlete. Um, second, FIFA has that team physician have the final say of whether or not a player is returned to the game. And third, uh, providers now have to um, match footage during the game to review and see, like you said, if the player that was concussed earlier this week, if you can see any things like fencing responses and things like that. Right. Right. So, I mean, rugby's instituted match play footage as well, and it's actually been shown to be pretty good. Uh, there was another study that just came out showing that that was, that was pretty effective at helping to increase the detection rate of concussions in, in rugby. And so I'm not sure. I haven't seen anything on, on soccer specifically using that. Now, but, I mean, I think that the biggest problem here is that you have a team physician. Do you think that represents – conflict of interest in any way like they're employed by the team so is it is it is it a team physician making the call or does it end up actually being you know the coach or the manager or the country that actually makes that call yeah and we see this in a lot in other sports and not just in concussion but in sports medicine in general do these team physicians their, their job is to work for the team right and whose best interest do they have in mind is it the player is it the coach who actually hired them? Is it the, the federation who is going to come under the scrutiny if something goes wrong? There's so many other factors here that needs to be considered. But um, in terms of FIFA itself, just as a whole, it's, it's much more different than other leagues, such as the MLB or the NBA, in that 
the FIFA umbrella is huge and it spans every continent on the world and there are hundreds of thousands of leagues under FIFA itself. So for FIFA itself to make a change, it has to be aligning with every federation in every country and thus at almost every club in the world, which is almost impossible to make change at that, at that level. Right. Right. So do they, like, in terms of policies for return to play, I mean, this guy um, comes back after he had a full-on fencing response and obvious loss of consciousness uh, less than five days ago, and, and they're back. So obviously with any type of loss of consciousness, that's a confirmed concussion. Now, FIFA's, FIFA's part of the international consensus statement. They're part of the joint you know, uh, international consensus statement on concussion in sport. Um, that player was actually sent to the hospital over which just adds to the whole severity of this situation. I've seen it in the Premier League, because like I said, FIFA has various leagues under its umbrella, and certain leagues have instituted policies regarding concussion and, and all that, but I've seen in certain leagues where rules are just blatantly ignored, and there's no consequence if you break such a rule. Um, for instance, in the Premier League, um, there have been teams that have been blatantly ignoring medical policy, and there's been no recommendation of that. So, in your opinion, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. In your opinion, what what needs to be done? Like, are there specific penalties you can think of? I mean, I think, in my opinion, there's you know, there's there's inter, there's there, there's the spotters that have been placed into other sporting events where you have an outside person determining whether or not that person should be evaluated, not the team physician, which I think gets rid of a little bit of the conflict of interest. But then when it comes down to return to play, which is this issue here of a player going back five days later, it's still the decision of the team physician whether or not to let that person play. In my opinion, I think you need some independence there. You need some outside personnel who's responsible for the clearance of a player. In your opinion, what what needs to be added to the 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 FIFA landscape for you know all the different leagues for for their concussion policy? Like, what do you think needs to be done? See, this is where it gets tricky because, like I had mentioned before, creating a policy in FIFA is quite the arduous task. But in my opinion, if this were an ideal scenario where you could enforce such a rule. Um, I would have to agree with you that, yes, you'd have to have some sort of independent medical personnel that is able to make that decision. And I think it's honestly something that can be achieved because this this is really bad in terms of optics too, right? Because you have players and, and kids and people all over the world watching this and they idolize these players. And when they see something like that happen in the World Cup, the game at the world's biggest stage, they think it's okay, mm-hmm. and they're learning from this. Right. And when you consider that there are, there are billions of kids around the world playing soccer that are learning from that, it just makes the problem worse. Right. So even if it was such a policy that, that kind of stated at the world's biggest stage, at the World Cup or at the Euros or at the Copa America, we're going to hire an independent medical company or whatnot to come on and you know screen for concussions and make the final decision in terms of who's ready to play and who's not. My vote is for complete concussion management. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you guys are pretty good over there, man. You guys put out some good content. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, um, thank you so much for coming on with us today, sharing your insights. Um, 
I'm not as uh, proficient in the soccer landscape as I probably should be, but uh, I thank you for your kind of expertise in lending your opinions and insights into it. And um, maybe we'll chat sometime soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Uh, pretty good discussions that were had. Uh, we didn't get to our one person, but I'm sure we'll, we'll uh, be able to get to you at some point. Uh, thanks, everyone, for watching. And uh, for those of you listening on podcasts, hopefully you were able to hear that uh, great discussion. And that's it for us. Episode 10, Ask Concussion Doc. Join us next week. See you guys later. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.